0: Just give us one hour, and we'll help you change the way you think about happiness. Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress Kamen is a fresh talk radio approach promoting happiness from the inside out. Happiness is a choice, and happiness can be cultivated and harvested. Each week, Lisa shines her light on well-being and global human flourishing by presenting a diverse and proactive collection of the greatest thinkers and doers who have devoted their lives to creating a better world in which to live. As a filmmaker, positive psychology coach, author, professor, and change agent specializing in the field of happiness, Lisa Cybers-Kamen is widely recognized as an expert in the field. On the show, she also focuses on military families and service personnel returning with PTSD, traumatic brain injury, and other post-deployment civilian life reintegration issues. So, let's spend some time getting to the heart of the matter on Harvesting Happiness on toginet.com. And now, here's your host, Lisa Cypress-Kamen.
1: Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening wherever you are. Welcome to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio, where we explore the very serious business of happiness, sustainable well-being, and human flourishing. We are not talking about that annoying yellow smiley face. No, no, no. We are talking about something much deeper and critical to the success of humanity. Authentic happiness is not selfish, egotistical, is most definitely all about the heart. Before we bring our guests on today, I want to let you know that if you hear something that excites you, that interests you, that you want to talk to us about, we love hearing from you. So tweet at us with the hashtag HarvestingHappiness or follow me on Twitter at Lisa Kamen and H talk radio all right let's get to it today we are talking about emotion the logic of emotion to be specific and my first guest is Ayal Winter he is a professor of economics and director of the Center for the Study of Rationality at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem one of the world's leading institutions in the academic study of decision making He chaired the economics department at Hebrew University and was the 2011 recipient of Germany's Humboldt Prize. He has lectured at over 130 universities in 26 countries around the world, including Harvard, Stanford, Princeton, and the University of Cambridge. And we are lucky and happy to have him join us from the United Kingdom today to talk about his new book, Feeling Smart, Why Our Emotions Are More Rational Than We Think. Hello, Ayal, and thank you for joining us.
2: Hi, Lisa. It's great to be with you.
1: Oh, this book is fabulous, and I love some of the points that you um, are touching upon, because you're really talking about um, our instincts, which many of us think are irrational, Mm -hmm. um, uh, but they're really not so irrational at all, that they actually make sense, that there's often logic in emotion and emotion in logic.
2: Right, right. You know, Lisa, there were two main conventional wisdom, which, which are which I thought are very wrong, um, uh, that most people believe in. And, and until, you know, two decades ago, even many scientists believed in. Uh, but now we know uh, are, are completely wrong. One of them uh, is that um, our brain is separated for the logic part of the decision-making and the emotional part. And these two parts of our brain uh, never communicate between themselves. Um, yeah, that's, that's in the, in the best-case scenario. In the, in, in the, the worst-case scenario, they fight all the time. Mm. And, um, and uh, this is why it's so hard for us to make decisions. This is a very wrong perception of uh, how we make decisions. In fact... Um, our emotion and rationality are communicating all the time. They speak with each other. They they deliberate issues. One cannot do without the other. Um, they are intermingled in a way that we are very fortunate to have them uh, working together. So this is the first uh, conventional wisdom that I wanted to refute. The other one is that many of us want to be, you know, like this doctor spoke. From, um, um, from this famous movie where, uh, you know, this individual who act only upon his rationality never let emotions kick in. Uh, we often believe that we would have made so much better decisions if we could shut up our emotional brain. And this is also wrong. Our emotions assist us in most interaction and most decision-making most of the decision-making that we we do even the most material one like when we enter a supermarket and and put our hand on a commodity on a product the final decision is always emotional uh, not to mention a decision that we that we make in interactive situations emotions really help us substantially in um, in uh, making better decisions and in facilitating our relationship with other people, that's what the book is about.
1: But I want to ask you a question about the premise of following our emotions or trusting our emotions or trusting our gut if you will when we come from a place that is fear-based that in general it's been my experience and i'm sure yours and most people who are listening that when we're in a in a calm place in a centered place we often make better decisions than when we come from fear anxiety stress nervousness and in imbalance
2: um, may maybe stress, maybe imbalance, it always depends to what extent, what is the volume of our emotion. But let me give you another negative uh, uh, emotion, which is anger. Turns out we make better decisions under anger in many situations. Let me tell you about a very interesting experiment that was conducted about 20 years ago in the U.S., not far from where you are now. Um, they took a bunch of people into the lab, gave them some money, and asked them to negotiate on dividing these monies in a way which was non-symmetric. So they uh, introduced some non-triviality into this, the bargaining situation so that well, there will be something to negotiate on. But they, in, before they put these individuals into the lab, they took half of them and made them more angry than the others. How do you make somebody angry synthetically? You ask him to write down in detail the most annoying event that took place in his life in the last two years. That you. It would make you very angry. You just recollect the very nasty situation and you become angry. Now, they took all these people into the lab and they, these people started negotiating. When they finished, they sort of um, counted how much money each of them made through the negotiations and believe it or not, those who came in with a higher level of anger came out of the negotiations with a higher level of money. That means the, that anger buys you money. And the way it buys you money, of course, it has to be moderate, uh, considerate. Uh, you know, if you, if you are <clears throat> exaggerating, if your emotions really drive you to, to corners which you shouldn't be there, uh, and, and you react really extremely, it would work against you. But, but a mod- moderate anger would make you better off. Because let's, th- let's think for a minute why. How can anger make us uh, materially better off? How could anger make these, these negotiators better negotiators? Well, it turns out that uh, by transmitting anger, we can... Um, deliver to the people we negotiate with. Listen, this this is an important issue for me. This is this is for instance, this is an insulting offer which I won't accept even if I'm financially better off accepting it. Right? If we wow. are completely rational, completely cool, show no emotion whatsoever, we can never credibly uh, claim that we will reject an offer because it is insulting well you're better off accepting it if you are so rational why should you say no to an insulting offer if we are angry it's more serious if we are angry we are managed we will be ma- we will manage to convince the other party that we uh, we are not going to accept the offer right and we use uh, sometimes very often unconsciously, we use emotion uh, so often uh, in a strategic way without being aware of it. Uh, it and uh, without being aware of it, uh, these emotions serve us very uh, 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 very well, but more, more than uh, work against us, right? So it's... Um, it's, uh, by the way, uh, uh, these, uh, this aspect of commitment, right? Well, we call it commitment because you are committing, for instance, by anger, not to accept um, an insulting offer. The same kind of commitment works also with positive emotions like empathy, like love. Okay? When we show love to a partner, when we show to a partner that we are in love with her or him, We basically tell uh, tell our partner, listen, our hands are tied behind our back to the extent that we are not capable of making decisions only based on our own interest. Okay, (laughs) We are in a state of mind that forces us to consider you and that generates trust, that generates reciprocity, that generates uh, love back. And uh, this is, uh, these are fascinating phenomena, which we uh, only recently um, started being aware of.
1: You know, what I hear you saying when I, I interpret both sides, the positive and negative emotion or seemingly assignment of value as positive and negative emotion, that it's also about what's igniting fire in the belly or, or passion. And it's mm-hmm. that... That state of being um, switched on, you know, in an in, in elevated within our body, that's what I'm hearing is actually triggering the better intuition.
2: To some extent, it does. We know that um, um, we humans have uh, a, a very um, special feature in our brain. It's it's it's, it's called the prefrontal cortex. Um, it's the, the most recent development of uh, human evolution in the brain. Uh, the brain started from the internal parts uh, uh, outward. Um, and this is the place where we uh, do most of the interactions between rationality and emotions. And intuition is, um, is part of this interaction. Okay? Um, How do we know that this is the place where we do it? In recent years, we started doing fMRI experiments where we put people inside the scan and give them tasks. And, for instance, tasks that involve social decisions, where you have to decide about social interaction, are those tasks which which get most of the interaction between our our emotions and and our rationality and what what we see is that most of the activity of the brain is taking place in this prefrontal cortex Um, and this is also the way this is also the place where we develop our intuition intuition is basically is coming out of um, the interaction of emotions and rationality sometimes you know, to uh, analyze a situation rationally is too complex. We need hints <laughs> which are more blur and on which we can react based on our feelings. And often these, these hints uh, turn out to be more informative and, and, uh, and more useful than a very thorough analysis based on full rationality, right? Um, uh, you know, with animal most most mammals are, are are working only based on their instincts. We humans have this aspect of uh, the, the ability to analyze situation and uh, to to use rationality, but when we overdo it, we do wrong. And that's why nature um, uh, equipped us also with these things that call intuition that actually. Um, put the brakes on how much uh, rationality we put into our decision-making. Turns out that we make better decisions if we involve our emotions uh, with our rationality. If we let our emotions make the decision alone, it's not going to be good. But if we, we are going
1: to, I'll, I hate to jump in here, but we're going to need to yeah. roll to a break and take our emotions and our, our uh, rationality to a little pause. And when we come back, we're going to continue the conversation with Ayal Winter. And his new book is Feeling Smart, Why Our Emotions Are More Rational Than We Think. A fascinating read.
0: We'll be right back. Thank you.
2: Nothing gives happiness like a free gift. Lisa cypress Cayman has made her 1st ebook, Got Happiness Now? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life, available at no cost to everyone. Unwrap your complimentary copy now by visiting www.HarvestingHappinessTalkRadio.com. Love is in the air In the whisper of the tree
1: Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. If you're just joining us now, I am with Ayal Winter, who is coming to us from the United Kingdom to talk about his new book, Feeling Smart. Why our emotions are more rational than we think. And prior to the break, we were talking about the value of trusting our gut, the value even of mm-hmm. moderate anger and um, a strong emotion to guide us in our decision-making process. And now I want to jump in and talk about strength in numbers, how collective emotions and group cohesion enable us to improve conditions.
2: Right, right. Hi, Lisa. So, um, collective emotions uh, uh, is the way I describe it in my book. Is uh, the tendency of group to the to coordinate to synchronize their emotions. Okay. Um, um, uh, some very good examples are you know um, people. Uh, cheering um, um, a baseball team, you know. Here in, in the UK, it's more soccer, uh, soccer, but where where people really go out of their skin uh, uh, and sometimes even become violent uh, when they are trying to defend or to show support to their their team. This is uh, this is a pure um, uh, example of of uh, collective emotions. And it, 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 the source of this type of behavior is obviously evolutionary. We human beings are social creatures. We cannot survive alone. And um, in order to survive, we need the other person. We need the other group. We need, uh, we, we, we need to, uh, to be part of a group. And, um, and the way we do it is by showing loyalty to, um, to our group members. Um, and strangely enough, you you find people um, uh, having uh, uh, in in you know in war situation uh, willing to give their life for, for the group. The same people mm-hmm. that uh, before the war for, for, uh, potentially would not uh, donate anything for for the community suddenly, when it's a war, and they are uh, um, feeling themselves as part of the group they would be willing to sacrifice the life for it and um i guess much uh, on the the collective emotions uh on in one on 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 one perspective are, are very important for us as a society this is where um uh, solidarity is coming uh, the willingness to help the, uh, the other person is coming Lots of very good uh, kind of, of, of behaviors are, are emerging from these uh, collective emotions. On the other hand, there are also very evil phenomena coming out of it. Most prominently are uh, the willingness of nations uh, to go into war, and the most relevant and more... Um, uh, 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 Something that we see around us uh, even these days is, is the tendency of uh, small group to develop uh, terrorist uh, acts uh, against nation, against other group. Uh, one, one aspect of um, uh, collective emotions, and these, there are some uh, very nice experiments they show it, is that you need uh, to develop the solidarity uh, within your group you actually need to have something, some uh, group or individual or nation that, is con- that you confront as a group. Okay? The group cannot um, usually uh, maintain itself in, a, a, in, in an atmosphere of solidarity when there is no outside threat uh, uh-huh. imposed on it. Right? You need this outside threat to maintain um, solidarity within this group. And what we see through history is that nations that build up their identity as nations also um, become very aggressive towards uh, other nations. For instance, if you if you take Germany, for instance, that emerged as a nation very late in history, only in 1870, it, it, there was a unification of um, uh, various uh Dutch, of various kingdoms within Germany and to um, turn these small countries into one unified countries psychologically and socially. um, It was almost inevitable for for Germany to get into um, aggression against other countries. And to some extent, this is what I think is happening in the Muslim world. The Muslim world is now uh, restructuring itself. And it, it, was very, um, it was very separated between Sunni and Shi, between uh, different countries, different type of regimes. And there is, um, there is a tendency, uh, like in any society, to, to, um, to form larger groups and uh, to develop new identity, or to to some extent in this case uh, is the identity of either being Muslim or being Arab, unified, some sort of unified Arab nation, and to generate this uh, cohesion and uh, solidarity, also here it's almost, it almost um, predicted, right, that... um, violence will come with it, right? And we indeed see it around us very very often these days.
1: Well, what's interesting that you just said is I I think we should qualify what is going on in the Muslim world versus fanaticism because I think that we've got uh, a bunch of fanatics who really do know how to use propaganda, social media, and and stirring the ire of young people who are... who don't have a lot of resources or hope to go out and create a better life for themselves, on the one hand. And then on the other hand, in the case of France, for example, you have a nation that was having its own set of problems with the rise of anti-Semitism with uh, the issue of the, um, the, the Muslims within their own country who were coming from as, as refugees into the country, and even those who were born there that don't have a lot of access to, um, to jobs, to social services, to basic needs, this uprising coming along within France, and then boom, you have a fanatical event, a terrorist event, which then unifies exactly as you've been describing, the people of France against this other force that is now a threat.
2: Yes, fanaticism is is a prerequisite for for terrorism. Terrorists cannot strive within um, a moderate society. But what one has to take into account is uh, you know we have fanatics in 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 every society, right? Um, uh, we also have fanatics in the UK, and uh, you know, in the in the US, in um, among the white population in the US, and, and uh, in in Germany, in every other country. Um, the reason why these fanatics are not um, active is because they are not uh, they are not uh, perceiving support that their act of terrorism will be supported by the population. Now, most of the Muslim population and Arab population is peace-loving individuals. But there is a non negligible part of the population which admires uh, act of terrorism against the West. And this is what these fanatics are... These are the people that the fanatics are trying to appeal to. They are um, uh, they are building. They get uh, their support. You know, if you you think about uh, about this issue from a rational point of view, hmm, why would a young uh, individual uh, risk his life uh, for killing other people uh, without any, uh, just for ideology, without any having any um, uh, uh, material benefit out of it, right? just risking his life, um, what they get out of it is the, is the psychological kick from being uh, taken as heroes by a substantial mm-hmm. group of Muslims slash Arabs, right? And yep. um, once this support, once this uh, um, uh, admiration for these acts will disappear, There will be no incentive for these people to do these acts, right? And uh, while we have to fight against these fanatics in trying to prevent from them to uh, perform these acts of terrorism, we should at the same time deal with the source of this terrorism, which is the support that they are getting. Now, the way to deal with it, uh, there are several. There are several ways. There, there, there's also the economic way that you mentioned. Indeed, in poor societies, and I know it a, a lot from what happens in Israel, in Gaza, uh, people who live in Gaza are, are, are you, you know, are, are at below the level of any any standard of poverty, right? And that's uh, that's enough reason for them to. Um, uh, support every radical person who is, um, who is promising to get uh, revenge on those who are apparently, according to, the, to his claim, uh, responsible for the poverty. Um, so, one way to deal with this uh, support and to reduce this support uh, for terrorism is to um, uh, raise the standard of living, right, in these places. Uh, uh, both in the third world in general, in, in the third, I would say in, in, in the Arab countries in general, and, and, uh, and especially those places uh, which suffer from poverty. This is one aspect, but this is not good enough. This is not uh, this would not be helpful enough. The, the most decisive way to fight against this support and eventually against terrorism uh, in general is education. Is yes. education because with education you really you know if you uh, educate individual uh, if you educate a kid to hate somebody it's it's a dumb thing you know by the time he is fifteen sixteen years old no matter what the um, um, no matter what the uh, environment economic environment would be his outside option he might be. He might be uh, uh, radical, he might be the one who would support and uh, hold as heroes those who commit these crimes. Um, it's very essential to affect the education of young kids, so that the, when they grow up, they won't be uh, supporting this. It, it, it's not to mention that with, with uh, uh, people who are grown up, we, we, we lose hope altogether. Uh, 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 education and, and uh, um, trying to uh, reach them and talk to them is also important, but the mo- most most effort should be given uh, to these kids that, uh, in, in 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 a way of securing our future.
1: Yes, um, and that it, it does come down to education, and unfortunately, we are out of time, which means one really good thing, that you'll have to come back and share some more time with us once again in the studio. It, you have been an absolute delight. The author is Ayal Winter. The book is Feeling Smart, Why Our Emotions Are More Rational Than We Think, and high praise for educating ourselves intellectually, emotionally, and socially, so we can raise Raise all ships in this amazing world in which we live. Thank you, Ayal.
2: Thank you, Lisa. Look forward for next time. Bye. You got it. Bye. Bye. Nothing gives happiness like a free gift. Lisa Cypress came and has made her 1st ebook, Got Happiness Now? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life, available at no cost to everyone. Unwrap your complimentary copy now by visiting www.HarvestingHappinessTalkRadio.com.
0: Like what you hear on Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio? Subscribe to us on iTunes and get your weekly dose of joy downloaded free and easily to your computer or portable device. That's Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio on iTunes.
1: Happiness Talk Radio. If you're just joining us now, we are talking about logic, reason, emotion, and philosophy today, as we should probably speak about it every day, because it is kind of what rules the roost if we're paying attention. My next guest is Rebecca Neuberger Goldstein. She's the author of 10 books of both fiction and philosophy. Her novels include The Mind-Body Problem, Properties of Light, A Novel of Love, Betrayal and Quantum Physics, and 36 Arguments for the Existence of God, a Work of Fiction. She is also the author of Incompleteness, the Proof and Paradox of Kurt Godel. And I'm sure I've pronounced Godel inappropriately, but Rebecca will correct me when she comes on. Named by Discover Magazine as one of the best science books of its year and the award-winning Betraying Spinoza the renegade Jew who gave us modernity. Her latest book is Plato at the Googleplex: Why Philosophy Won't Go Away, published this past spring. The recipient of numerous awards for both her fiction and scholarship, in 1996 she was awarded the MacArthur Fellowship, pop- properly popularly, I can't speak, known as the Genius Prize. Welcome, Rebecca. Rebecca, thanks for joining us.
3: Well, it's my pleasure, Lisa.
1: And I appreciate you coming out in the um, blustery uh, depth of winter to bring a little warmth to the airwaves because we could use it, it sounds like. All of us could use it.
3: Yeah, yeah. Be, I'm in Boston and we've been hit pretty hard.
1: Yes, you have. I hear six feet walls of snow and I think we could probably wax philosophical about how how to manage when we are walled in by snow and ice. And I'll leave that to you. (laughs) (laughs)
3: Yes, (laughs) we have to rise above it, somehow or other.
1: Somehow we have to steel ourselves. Let's talk about the difference between Western philosophical traditions and perhaps more global views of philosophy and how they um, apply to happiness, well-being, human flourishing.
3: Mm, big topics, yes. So uh, you know the the profession of philosophy uh, is is often quite different from the way people think of you know philosophy waxing philosophical. It's a it's a discipline. It's got uh, a very disciplined way of, of thinking. It's, it, it tries to be very rigorous. Very uh, a lot of attention paid to conceptual analysis and the rigor of arguments. Uh, so it's, um, you know, the, the life of a professional philosopher can can be devoted to very, very small things, analysis of very tiny little questions instead of grand sweeping theories about, uh, you know, human flourishing and ways of wisdom. Uh, I think that ways of wisdom is the way uh, we... we we tend to think about philosophy in general, um, and, uh, you know, I think it's very, very important to bridge these two, uh, that people who have devoted their, their lives to the rigor and the discipline of philosophy and learning its various techniques and its history um, should have something of importance to say uh, to, in, in relation to this wider notion of philosophy, ways of wisdom, um, how to live a life that matters uh, in, in the biggest sense of the word.
1: And to me, this is what happiness is personally. You know, that I look at happiness as not that annoying yellow smiley face, as I often speak about, but really about creating a life of meaning and, and, and what matters most to us as individuals. And I think this is where philosophy touches happiness in a very um, simplistic way you know the difference between the two kinds of happiness that, that that uh is often spoken of the hedonic happiness and the eudaimonic happiness and mm-hmm. i think you, you, this eudaimonic um uh bent is where we're talking about the meaning is it not
3: oh absolutely yes yeah. so the you know, this sort of fleeting happiness that we often think about when we think of happiness or the mood um, that's very responsive to just day-to-day living, you know, whether things are up or down. Um, and uh, uh, that's that's not the kind of happiness uh, that, that philosophers are talking about when they talk about uh, eudaimonia, which has been a term that's been around, you know, since the ancient Greeks who started this whole process. Uh, and, and really as a way of, uh, you, you sometimes the, the life of meaning, the life of mattering requires us to go through things that are not, don't make us particularly happy, uh, that, uh, that are hard work, um, sacrifice, discipline, and uh, just feel, feel hard. Uh, but in the long run, perhaps may be worth it, or perhaps not. Philosophy is devoted to that. What is, it, what is worth it in the long run? Hmm. And, and I th- like what you said about... I'm, I'm sorry? sorry? I was saying part of the answer that, that, that's been given and that it was started again in ancient Athens uh, was that, you know, a life that takes us out of ourselves, uh, a, a life devoted to something bigger than ourselves, and, and um, often it's put in terms of a life devoted to, to knowledge, but also virtue, justice. Um, and so it, it 's often called the paradox of happiness. If you pursue it um, on its own, it will flee away from you. but if you 're pursuing something else, um, something often outside yourself, uh, it, it will come to you. Um, there 's a kind of paradoxical aspect of, of this larger sort of happiness that philosophers speak of
1: well it 's like the, the, the pursuit of the end game. Um, complicates, uh, the goal, but it's the journey, you know, of just doing what we do, doing what we love, doing these simple things that give pleasure, that give meaning. The byproduct of these things more often than not, sometimes not because there is trial and error involved is happiness, whether it's fleeting or it's something that is enduring. This is what yes. I-, I find and I certainly observe and I am not a philosopher.
3: Yes. See, what, it's funny, because one of the, the problems with, I think, the profession of philosophy and why it sometimes uh, speaks in such technical jargon and makes itself so inaccessible to those outside, um, against which I protest tremendously, is that uh, there's a way in which we're all philosophers. We all think about these big questions all the time. And um, so uh, there's I think that because of this, philosophers often quite self consciously try to separate themselves from 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 the masses of people and speak in very uh, uh, uh technical and almost pseudo scientific terms uh to try to show that they 've got more to say about this than than, than non professionals but um and this i this I believe to be a great mistake this is why i 've I've experimented with so many different forms of writing because I do believe it's one of my deepest beliefs uh, that we are all interested. Uh, we're all searching uh, for these big questions. We're all wisdom seekers, uh, not, just, not just professional philosophers.
1: Well, I think that inquisitiveness is we're hardwired for it. You know, we, 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 we come programmed to, to ask why. As humans.
3: Yeah, I think that's really true. I think that there are two very big questions that we are pre-programmed, as you say, to ask. And what is uh, the question of, you know, w- what is it? What kind of universe is this that we find ourselves in? Um, you know, and this is a great drive for, for scientific inquiry and also philosophical inquiry. But then there's also the question of, and what, what matters? uh and and this i think is this is the heart of a uh, of philosophical inquiry that the question of what matters um, do i matter we all care desperately about this question and all of the great normative paradigms whether they're religious or secular spiritual or or, or other uh the questions that try to tell us how we ought to live our lives um are all ultimately uh, concerned with this question of, you know, what is it for me to live a life that, that matters uh, so that I perhaps, you know, I'm adding something to to what is, that my life makes some sort of difference. And uh, I think this is the really, the, the, you know, this is the very emotional side of um, Of of these quests that we all have, uh, whether we put them in religious terms or secular terms, it doesn't really matter. What unites us is this existential uh, need to feel like it, it, it makes a difference that we've been here for the brief period of time that we've been here. I like what you
1: just said, you know, that, that, that it makes a difference that our footprint, our existence or our little um, layover on this planet um, means something. I think we all, or not all, but many of us, like, w- this is what we want out of life. We want to, like, know that in some way we've made a print, footprint.
3: Yeah, yeah. And, you know, and it can it can manifest itself in ways that are quite horrible right um narcissistic and uh self aggrandizing or even um power hungry and uh you know going after uh dominance um it can go you know it can manifest itself in those ways and it can manifest itself in ways that are you know my I, I i would argue as a philosopher are are better ways uh to to show that we mattered ways that uh, that helped that help other people feel like they matter too, that we're all in, on this, in, in this together. And, um, you know, I would, I would argue as a philosopher that, that the, that's a better way to try to achieve mattering uh, by, by, by helping others achieve it along with you. But I would argue that it's a philosophical truth uh, that, that, that one could really demonstrate that to the extent that any of us matter, we all matter in exactly the same way, uh, and that is one of the deepest truths that philosophy has delivered to us. That's beautiful.
1: We are going to go to a break, and when we come back, we are going to continue the conversation with Rebecca Newberger goldstein To learn more, please visit www.rebeccagoldstein.com, and on Twitter, the handle is at Plato. Book tour, and when we return, we are going to talk about her latest book, Plato at the Googleplex Why Philosophy Won't Go Away, which has just come out in paperback. Here come those tunes, bring back.
0: like Lisa's take on happiness, well-being, and human flourishing? Join us this spring as Harvesting Happiness launches online classroom programming where Lisa Cypress-Kamen will offer her workshop series across the globe and from the comfort of wherever you are. Visit HarvestingHappiness.com for more details.
2: Be a part of the grateful good. Being grateful inspires others to be grateful as well. Isn't it time we jumpstart some perpetual gratitude? Visit Grateful Nation online to find out more at www.gratefulnation.org. Have a grateful day.
0: I feel good I knew that I wouldn't I feel good I knew that I wouldn't.
1: So good! Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness Talk. Radio. if you're just joining us now, I urge you to download this podcast and share it because. Sharing is caring, and we love sharing good stuff around here, and our our episodes are available for free 24-7 on iTunes and other providers. They're kind, they're free, they're legal, and they are fun. And today we are talking with Rebecca Neuberger-Goldstein about logic, reason, emotion, and philosophy. And prior to the break, we began sort of touching on um reason as it relates to happiness, our well-being, and creating a life that matters and of meaning. So, Rebecca, let's talk about where reason and accountability play in this whole equation. And yes. I laugh because I'm, I, yes. I think of that line from the movie.
3: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, I don't think reason can do it all on its own, but I do think reason is actually a great help to us in, in, in trying to achieve some sort of perspective um, and for helping our species kind of progress, uh, move on. I, that's a kind of that's a somewhat controversial claim, um, but uh, but I do believe it to be true that we are we are creatures we are rife with inner contradictions. We're very compartmentalized. And we can live with all sorts of inconsistencies. For example, demanding, you know, that we be treated in a certain way, you know, that people recognize our rights and our dignity, um, but, but, you know, perhaps not uh, expanding that to to others who are, especially if they're very, very different from us, because, you know, we, we're partly formed. Uh, our psychology, by, by evolution. And it's given us uh, the uh, ability to be very compartmentalized, especially when it's in our self-interest, right? And so we need something, Just we need a way, a discipline and a rigor uh, to confront our inner contradictions and our inconsistencies, which, as I say, they often work in our own favor and our own self-interest, um, and, and we're not prepared to give to others what we demand uh, that others give to us uh, in, in terms of recognition of our rights. And, 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 and that's what accountability is really all about. I, th- I say that reason, which points out these inconsistencies, our inner incoherence, um, is a help, and it's, and it's, it's helped to push us on. And philosophical arguments have helped to push us on and, um, you know, that there was an argument uh, against slavery and there were arguments in favor of, of women's emancipation and all the way up into our own day when there were arguments for gay rights and arguments uh, for animal rights. A very wonderful philosopher, a friend of mine, Peter Singer, at, uh, at Princeton um, University about 30, 35 years ago started to point out the inconsistencies uh, in the way we treat animals in factory farms. And it seemed like a very abstract argument. Um, And he seemed a little wacky in making it. And slowly, you know, we we confronted this argument and we begin to feel more and more uh, queasy and uneasy and um, and our emotions start changing. I mean, there's no social change without emotions changing. But it was really—it was an argument. It was a philosophical argument put forth by a philosopher, Peter Singer. That is—that is slowly over the course of my lifetime, I'm I'm watching how, you know, how our reactions are changing. Certainly, my reaction is changing uh, about about animals and the way we treat animals. So that's how I think you know reason reason has a role to play here uh to point out our inner inconsistencies
1: well what you just said about no social change without emotion that's also uh i think a truth that unless yeah. we are touched in some way internally you know that it that it strikes some chord of our own personal emotional life there is no motivation to change or to grow
3: exactly yeah even The the wonderful philosopher David Hume, you know, a great uh, um, Enlightenment thinker, said that reason in itself is perfectly inert. Reason in itself can't get us to do anything. It needs... you know, we need the emotions, we need empathy, we need to identify. But often what we need is an argument that shows us that we ought to be identifying, that the empathy ought to be flowing outward to those who are very different from us. You know, and now even, you know, we're, we're, we're feeling it towards species that are that are different from us. Uh, so, you know, we need, one of the ways I like to put it um, is that... Um, a reason without the emotions is empty, uh, but uh, the emotions without reason is blind. You know, it it, it doesn't it doesn't know which way to go. Uh, so we need both of them, and um, and that is that's the, that's a good thing. We need philosophy and psychology both uh, to uh, to 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 help us figure out not only what we are, but what we ought to be, where we ought to be going.
1: Yeah. I'm just, I'm taking in what you just said and I, and I'm, I'm smiling actually from ear to ear because I, I do believe that we operate optimally when we've got both aspects working together. That, you know, one who is hyper emotional, um, and, and lacking in reason, um, doesn't get very far. And one who is high on the reason scale, but lacking in empathy generally does not experience life through the lens of joy,
3: absolutely right. It's that you know we really need both for a life of full flourishing. Uh, that's 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 uh, you know, but it's a tall order. And um, it, but it's we have to keep reminding ourselves of this and helping each other along. Uh, this is you know the community of people who are are seeking this this bigger life, a life of mattering. Um, we we need each other.
1: We do, and this is, and this is the place where we thrive when we when we can recognize that we really do need each other, and we learn um, constructive ways to reach out for support. So it's not something that comes from foot stamping; it's something that comes from communicating in this very way that that you're discussing.
3: Yeah, and it's the deepest kind of communication. I think, you know, when we get down to it's, it's also it's exposing our vulnerabilities and, uh, you know, our, our uncertainties. And, 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 and that's, you know, that's us when we're being our most honest. Uh, so this is, um, you know, it's a, it's a brave and, and risk-taking uh, activity,
1: Mm, it makes me think of the work of Brene Brown, you know, you're talking about vulnerability and risk taking. And I think that it is uh, an essential component to, to really flourishing to stepping into that life of meaning, which is, like you said, at the beginning of our talk, um, often born out of discomfort. And I'm paraphrasing what you said, but you yeah. know, there's nothing yeah. like a, a good dose of adversity, which one can't buy to, 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 to transform yourself
3: yeah no that's that that's absolutely true you know complacency you don't move on and uh it's the, i think the, perhaps the people I feel the most sorry for are people who um you know are going to exit life thinking exactly the same thing that they entered life thinking uh that that just seems to me um sort of sad and uh um I don't know just sort of uh cut off stunted i would say the the growth is one of one of the most pleasurable experiences that we can have uh, especially when it's done in the company of others when we're we're doing it together
1: mm. so true in your book Plato at the Googleplex, Why Philosophy Won't Go Away. I know you've got a lot of ideas about why the ancient Greeks were the, the ones to discover philosophy in the first place. Tell us a little bit about that. What, what, what makes the Greeks so uniquely contemplative that, that they were the ones, and I'm doing air quotes as I say that.
3: Yeah, right, no. They, I mean, they're just amazing people. That they started so much. I mean, not only you know philosophy, but science and abstract mathematics, and democracy, and you know, it's, and produced all this great art uh, that that still moves us to our very core. You know, the the, the poetry, the drama, the architecture, sculpture. Uh, they were the overachievers of all time, so I look at them very much in the context of their of their day in terms of what was going on in the globe, the wider globe uh, during that time. And one of the, the things that is so extraordinary, and it really connects to the things that we're, you and I are talking about today, is that not at the same time that the Greeks were inventing, you know, tragic poetry and also philosophy, all of the Religious and spiritual paradigms that still exist today were being forged. Uh, So, you know, the Abrahamic religion and Confucianism and Taoism and uh, Hinduism, Buddhism, Jainism, Zoroastrianism, all. And then secular philosophy. The Greeks were different from these other peoples who were forging these great normative systems in that they didn't look to their gods to figure out this question of what it is to live a life of mattering. But in many different parts of the globe, there was this kind of uh, existential activity, uh, the the kinds of questions that we're still asking today, and that's why these answers still resonate with us. and I, And I do think that something had gone had, had happened that uh people in these various uh places and it was usually um quite uh stable uh places that had cities so these this was a cos- co- cosmopolitan activity they'd achieved a certain degree of um, of stability their basic uh needs for survival had been met. And here's the kind of creatures we are. As soon as the will to survive is finally satisfied and life is, you know, you're getting enough to eat and there's enough stability, um, a roof over your head, um, you start start thinking about the will to matter and, you know, what can I do so that this life matters? And so you get this tremendous activity of very large thinking that gives us You know all of these religious and spiritual um, uh, frameworks, and also the Greeks, and they went about it through reason, and that's what that's what distinguishes them. It's that the the existential questions are the same as these other civilizations, but. but they don't look to their gods. I think partly it's because their gods are just terrible. Their gods are so untrustworthy. They're like, I think of them, I was a middle child, and I had an older brother and an older sister who were kind of gods to me. You know, they were bigger and smarter and more beautiful, and I would never catch up to them. They were way older than I. Um, and that's kind of how those Greek gods were. They were just bigger and better um, versions of of mortals, but they were they were morally uh, despicable. you know they rape and they and they lie and they 're just unreliable so and which is interesting that 's a funny thing about those greek gods they 're not like Jehovah uh, but <laughs> they, um, they, so the Greeks sort of approached this question in very human terms, like what can we do? Uh, in, in human terms, what can we achieve uh, so that we, uh, our lives matter? It made them very ambitious. They, you know, they produced the great art, and they're it made them very warlike. They, they tried to dominate each other and other civilizations. Um, but it also made them philosophical, and it also gave them a kind of tragic view of life. They don't believe in immortality. We have to do it now for ourselves. Um, in very human terms, and I think this this is what forced philosophy out of these out of this particular Mediterranean tribe. Right across the Mediterranean, or is that other tribe? You know, the Hebrews approaching these same existential questions, but in very different ways. Um, you know, it's it's the master of the universe, and you know he has chosen us, and we will please him, and that's the way to achieve a life of mattering. Greeks don't go about it in that way.
1: We are out of time. If you are curious, please take a look at the book, Plato at the Googleplex, Why Philosophy Won't Go Away, authored by Rebecca Goldstein. To learn more, please visit www.rebeccagoldstein.com and on Twitter, the handle is at Plato book Tour. And here are a few thoughts before we part. Happiness is not a destination. It cannot be bought, sold, or traded. Happiness will never invite you to the party. Happiness simply comes down to a choice to show up each and every day in the world with passion, purpose, place, and meaning. Thanks for joining us on Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. This is Lisa Cypress Kamen and my amazing guest today, Ayal Winter and Rebecca Goldstein wishing you kind thoughts, kinder words, and the kindest of actions. Until next time, remember, happiness is an inside job. Happiness is your inside job. And deep gratitude to our producers who make us shine consistently each and every week. We appreciate you. Go out and make it a good one.
0: Thanks for joining us on Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio with Lisa Cypress-Kamen. Join us every Wednesday morning live at 10 to 11 Central Time here on TogiNet Radio. Then harvest your own happiness anytime from the comfort of wherever you are with free downloadable podcasts available at iTunes. To learn more about Lisa's filmography, felicitation, and philanthropy, please visit HarvestingHappiness.com. Each week, Harvesting Happiness presents engaging trendsetters, exploring our world through science, art, medicine, media, music, philosophy, politics, and the human heart, whose perspectives on life are sure to inspire, provoke, and engage. Lisa's diverse guests are a proactive collection of the greatest thinkers and doers who have devoted their lives to creating a better world in which to live. Like Lisa says, happiness is an inside job. Happiness is your inside job. Spread more joy by liking us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and following us on Twitter at Hashtag Then join us again next week at this same time on the Toginet Radio Network.